Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome back to The Deal with Danny Brown. Thank you for tuning in and following. If you could, please take some time and leave a comment either on iTunes or YouTube. It's a huge, huge help for us. Um, also this week, I just can't wait to get into it with Josh LaBelle, just one of the coolest, smartest guys I've ever met. Uh, amazing, amazing, talented guys. Runs a hedge fund, uh, does a lot of other interesting stuff. Father of five kids. Uh, just a good all-around dude. So we're going to get into some really interesting topics. And uh, I always, always like hanging out with Josh LaBelle. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And I'll see you soon. Bye. First of all, I appreciate the the compliments. Uh, you were a little heavy on them, but I appreciate them <laughs> nonetheless. I had to get into your podcast here at, at your invitation within the first you know season, yeah. Uh, because once you uh, you know, are in season two and season three, there's no way I'd ever <laughs> get invited. It. It's going to so, be too big. I you know I had to be here when when it didn't matter. So <laughs> That's funny. So thanks. I just want to mouth the God's ear. So you're yeah, getting you in go. early. Yeah. You're, on, you're in the bottom. Uh, of you. It's my greatest hope that in a, yeah. that in a year or two you look back and you say like I can't believe it. In the first year we actually had to have this <laughs> Josh guy on. What was that putz doing? You know you you have a for startups getting in early on ground floor that's yeah, sort of well, your business you know. we'll get into all that but I, I have to do a, a disclaimer as well about josh labelle you're probably the smartest guy i know and not to embarrass you but he may you may talk about some topics that i go blank on and that i just look like a deer in headlights so if there's any listeners or viewers that especially you oh and probably you too that have no clue what josh is talking about when he starts saying things you don't feel like it's just you it's all of us my, my dear if you can't say something, on another level if you can't say something in a way that someone else understands it you're just faking it well i'm a dummy so you gotta really dumb it down i, I have the eq the emotional intelligence why but, would anybody watch two dummies talk <laughs> well they're not they're just watching one <laughs> yeah, dummy talk to one brilliant guy no, so we'll get into all that but let's start from the beginning thanks for having me Thanks for being here. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, I know you're an L.A. guy. You grew up in Beverly Hills, although probably not the typical Beverly Hills upbringing. But let's go from the beginning, how you grew up, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you got into uh, your career. You're a hedge fund guy. You've been in the finance business your whole career. Yeah. I only t That only tells a little bit of your story. But let let's start with where you grew up, where you went to school, how you got into finance yeah. and the hedge fund business. Well, look, you know, I'm a single uh, single child of a, raised as a single child of a single parent. Yeah. Uh, so I was raised in the 70s. I'm 48 now. Uh, and I was raised in the 70s, Good old by, 70s. A, by a single father. Uh, yeah. And that was an unusual setup back then. Yeah. Uh, my parents divorced when I was two. Uh, and my mom moved some- Mine too. Yes. My parents divorced when I was I two. I remember that, yeah. Some uh, measure geography away. So we know what it's like uh, to kind of be raised in a non-nuclear uh, yeah. environment. Uh, yes. You now have standard. A, you now have a marriage and a I lot of kids. I have a traditional family with three kids and you have a traditional family with five kids. And I, we'll, I we'll got get a into traditional that. family of five kids. I so love your, your family and your children. <laughs> see, Great we're, children. We're, we're both lucky. And what else, are we, what else are we really here for at the end of the day? Yeah. Um, nothing more important. But for yeah, sure. raised, uh, you know, single child, single parent. My dad was a menswear salesman. Um, he worked at the Los Angeles Apparel Mart selling Selling men's suits. Shimata uh, business. He very much was in the Shimata business. And so I'm the first in my lineal line to uh, to attend college. You're the uh, first. I am the first. Right, so uh, that's a very you, unique, unusual. There weren't that many of us. So, you know, if my mom didn't and my dad didn't. Did your dad I, grow up in L.A. too? Yeah. So my, parent, my, my grandparents moved out to the West Coast from uh, Detroit just after World War II. You know, better climate. Got it. Opportunity. From the Midwest. Get out of the, right.
right? There was a great migration west. Yeah, and, that's when my grandma, well, one side know. of my grandparents came out. Very yeah. common Jews migrating west for opportunity. No good. And they all dumped themselves right in the Louis Pasteur Hamilton High School yeah. District. My dad or somewhere went to Boyle Hamilton. And, my mom went to Fairfax. Yeah. Did, you, your dad, did we know that? I, I my th- dad th- went to Hamilton. I think seven. And my dad is 77. 79. Yeah, okay, so, so we got to get them together. Yeah. They, right, they so may, let's make a note uh, to do that <laughs> right away. Yeah. The Hamilton, uh, what are the Hamilton? A few more years, they may be the only What's guys Hamilton's they know thing? anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Why is it that so many people uh, from that generation, our parents' generation, are Jewish and went to Hamilton or Fairfax? It's so odd. Because you know, there's not uh, many Jews that go to Hamilton and Fairfax today. But uh, that was a different uh, different city. We can get into that. That's yeah, another was, tangent. Uh, the L.A. was very different then. You know, there's a, a big metaphor in uh, American, uh, in the American Jewish experience, experience, you know, Brooklyn in the 50s, right? Everyone yeah. can relate. And there's a lot of Brooklyn Dodgers stuff going on there and certain sure. authors and certain celebrities and certain comedians and certain, certainly certain, certain athletes, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that Hamilton High School in that neighborhood in the 50s in Los Angeles is very much a parallel to that. Uh, so, that's right you know, that's there, where yeah. our parents were raised and that's, uh, and, they, and, and out we came, right? So you grew up here, you went to Beverly High? Went to Beverly High. My, and where'd you get, yeah. go to school after Beverly? So I, are you a Wharton guy? Yeah, yeah so, I knew that, of course. Yeah, you know, my MBA, dad was one of those guys who kind of worked really hard to put me two inches inside the school district. Uh, I grew up in a little apartment on the north side of the Pico Robertson area. Just, uh, like, just like Jessica. Yeah, just like Jessica. <laughs> exactly. Could be the farthest, from, the farthest thing from it, right? So you were the kids uh, that the parents got an apartment on the edge of Beverly Hills, very middle class at best, to get into the school district. There yeah, was look, lots of kids, yeah. that, families that did that. And then yeah. there was the kids that lived on the other side, the tracks yeah, and the mansions yeah. that went to Beverly. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I don't really carry that around. I, I hope not, but that's true. Now, I wouldn't say like barely on the edge of middle class. Maybe by the standards of this particular geography, it may have been barely middle yeah, class. Yeah, well, but, I guess but in today's I was world. wanting for nothing, yes, you know, in course. the grand scheme of in the grand scheme of life. And uh, just yeah. very grateful for for the hard work my, da- the my mean, dad put in. Mean streets of Olympic yeah. and Beverly. Brutal. Yeah. And now, scary. Uh, now he's got five grandkids. Right. So, yeah, the mean streets, man, the, the, mean, mean, streets. the, the mean streets of Boychick Town. So tell me um, how you got into obviously you went to Wharton. Yeah. So I, went, uh, I graduated from UCLA, attended. Oh, so Wharton. you started here. And then yeah. Went to and I was, you know, because of the you know, circumstances in which I was born, uh, combined with the fact that I was pretty aggressive reasonably ambitious and had an intellect which was uh, acclimated towards mathematics, finance, and business. Okay, so headed to the East Coast yeah. because that's where, you know, that in our generation, that was one of the ways. You yeah, could Wall s- Street, if you're smart and you're intelligent and you want to make it big, Wall Street's a huge. You could at least get this far uh, <laughs> by just working really hard and digging. So let's rewind back to school. If were you were prepared you, to dig it out of the ground. Were you always like, the smart guy in class, math guy. Was it like okay, this you were yeah. or were you like you well, Mensa on the whole deal? Is that no, like d- definitely not. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Definitely, definitely not. I would not. think that you are, if you ask um, me. Well, you know, if even so, if you're not, I'm saying you are. I'm, uh, if so, I'm certainly undiscovered. Uh, the uh, so you know, growing up without a tremendous amount of what I'd call classical guidance, right? My, as I said, my dad was a clothing salesman. Yeah. So I was lucky to make it to school. Got it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and That's... then, you know, but over time, you know, you know, I grew up as an only child. My mentors were in books, right? Yeah. I read scores and scores and scores yeah. of books. It wasn't and I know a you're still a huge reader, huge which reader, is a big right? part of yeah. your so you put it all together. Your I think I put it all together and, you know, kind of an undergrad, graduated towards the top of my class and then moved on. Can you little, pull the mic in a little bit closer? A little closer. Me? Yeah, yeah, sure. He's meant somebody. He can't figure out the mic. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> so, okay. So, you're good at school. You go to, you go to, once you go to, you get your MBA, obviously. Yeah. Uh, finance is one of the big pillars of uh, Wharton MBA. So, you, what was your first job into finance? How did you get I, I, into it? 
<clears throat> so when I graduated UCLA, uh, I went to work at Jeffries and Company here in Los Angeles, okay. which yep. at that time was a group comprised of denizens from Drexel Burnham on okay. the investment so they banking side. Jeffries. They, that was one of the few places that they that they went on the investment banking side. And coming out of UCLA without a classical finance education, I was lucky to get the job. Worked hard, scraped my way in. Yeah, it did my very 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 best. Yeah, uh, before. That's grad before, school. That's before grad school. Yeah. And then I moved to the East Coast, attended Warden, and then I began what I consider to be the adult phase of my career. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I went down to Morgan Stanley. And Morgan Stanley at that time was a really interesting place. It's still, you know, one of the most favorite places I've, certainly the favorite place I've ever worked. I enjoyed it. Wow. Tremendous respect for the culture. Incredible place. And like the classic pre-IPO Morgan Stanley partner was a, you know, kind of raised in the Northeast or in the Mid-Atlantic, um, you know, West Point or Annapolis, you know, four years of service. Wow. Uh, HBS or Wharton back yeah. down, uh, you know, then to the co. And, you know, the ethical standards and the code of honor and the character back in that era, and I'm not saying anything about what it's like in this era, it just yes, things have changed on there. Wall Street, was fantastic. I was there at the very tail end of that. It's when very these, noble. When That's these classic lions were walking around. And yeah, so I was there for four years, a three and a half, That's whatever. That's good training somewhere. ground. If you're getting introduced to the big time, yet there's some nobility and some integrity around it. I mean, I think that's a, a really good place to be entrenched and have your first experience because that's uh, going to be something that influences you forever, whether it was a negative or a positive, in this case, a positive. I mean, that's something that you carry with you totally. for sure when you're at the very impressionable stage and you're looking yeah. up to these big ballers. If those guys were crooks, that would have been your you know, your education, you know, and so you got a good education studying. What, yeah, maybe what I'm naive, guys. but um, and I and I'm I'll admit it fully if I am, but I didn't see a lot of crooks at Morgan Stanley yeah. in, that, in that era. Um, and um, so that is my wife, the mother of the five children. Um, good. We will turn this off. I was right wondering now. if that was Would one you of like the, me to talk to her while we're uh, sure. I'd like to get yeah. her on the podcast. Can uh, we'll, you ask her? I know yeah, we have we'll, big we'll things to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> but in that era, there was, uh, you know, there was a certain type of guy who walked the halls of that firm. Yeah, that's, that that's was interesting. Deep, deeply admirable. Yeah. So how long were you there? At, you know, wow, what, what was yeah, your first three, run? Three, three and a half years. And I was in the global M&A group. Okay. Uh, working on a whole variety of assignments uh, for companies large and small, a lot of tech companies, a lot of telecom companies, uh, including a couple of the firm's Lion accounts, uh, which uh, you know probably uh, shouldn't mention here because there's always a confidentiality with respect yeah. to who those are. But, you know, a, a smattering of Fortune 50 and uh, gigantic uh, so financial sponsors. So you cut your teeth on just big time it was a lot business. Of work. It was a lot of work. Yeah, it was young. I was junior. I was at the bottom long of the hours. A lot, lot of long hours. Right? What was the typical Look, hour? The, I mean, the, what were you talking Sleeping in your, under your desk there kind were, of thing? There were, there were plenty of those, right? There <laughs> but were plenty it was of those. like 16, 18 Look, hour days. You have a first, people say that you only get a first chance to make a first impression. Yeah. And that's a cliche. But it is a cliche that is a cliche. It's true. It's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. Like location. Location, location. It's a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Hello, it's spoken from yes. the corner of Beverly Drive in Wilshire. Yes. Right? Um, so yeah, I went in hell's bald as balls to the wall. I gave it everything I had, yeah. and you know, I'll be honest and say that Morgan Stanley was a firm that gave back. Yeah. Uh, you know, they rewarded me with the assignments that I wanted. Uh, eventually, went into the uh, into a division, uh, one of their private equity groups within the M and A department, uh, where I focused largely on uh, tech and telecom uh, stuff. And you're just um, twenty still. This is after grad yeah, school. Late twenties. Late twenties. Right out of Wharton. So you're having living the dream in New you're York making City. money, living the dream as a young guy. I mean, you're that's a great job to have. I mean, it's yeah. hardcore. It's your life, but you're able to really live a great life, young guy going out in New York. So I lived in a 400 square foot apartment. Now we're in Los Angeles. Than this office. Can you right? Can you can you imagine a 400 square foot 
apartment. And and you and you, you want to hear something even cooler? <laughs> Everyone was jealous because this because you <laughs> had buddies. an apartment. <laughs> this this was in a really really good building. The only thing was is that in classic New York style, it was a really nice building, but it was a tiny little apartment. Now here's the funny thing about it. Apparently, the people who used to live there was a three year old baby because the, exactly next door was baby a really large unit. And in, in fancy New oh, York that style, was a bedroom they, had for brought, they had bought this separate studio apartment. So I had across the top of the, the crown molding, what do you call it, had been tiled with uh, cartoon figures and giraffes Perfect. and things like that. So it was always... Uh, that makes for a good setting for a young bachelor in his 20s. It, it, was a, it was a social juxtaposition, and I was always happy when people gave me the benefit of the doubt. Um, but of course, there weren't any of those. Uh, so and, you're in New York, you're yeah. working hard, you're starting to make some money, learn the business, you have your own apartment. When was the next phase? When did it, Was it a right. pretty quick after that that you got right. into hedge fund business? Yeah, and, exactly. Exactly. So that's exactly right. So just a little bit of financial history here, which I think is worth repeating. I, For sure. I started at Morgan Stanley in August of 1998. And uh, if you were to kind of look through the annals of financial history, that was uh, exactly smack dab in the middle of what we call the Russian crisis, Got it. Uh, which you may recall a very famous, very, very levered, very large, very storied at that time group of people running a hedge fund called long-term capital management uh, went bust uh, because their highly refined algorithms, which had served them so well for such a period of time, failed. Uh, and it was uh, supposedly a very low probability event that caused the failure. But as others have happened. pointed out since then, you know, Nassim Taleb with the black swan, et cetera, uh, that is exactly kind of what happens, right? When you make very, very large and very, very levered bets, assuming that unusual things don't happen, occasionally they do. And um, when they happen, it's going to be you, painful and you a get big smoked, issue. Man. Yeah. And it took down, you know, it took down, um, you know, various currencies, markets around the world were Is that royal. because there was billions of dollars tied to that? That investment? I mean, yeah. well, how, how do you yeah. take down companies and economies? There must be billions of Well, it took dollars. down markets. It didn't take down companies in the economy, but it did take down markets. And when you have a very, very large player, well, let's, let's make a, a real estate analogy because we're here at Compass today, right? Yeah. Uh, let's, let, let's assume that somebody owned, I don't know how many, how much inventory would you say is for sale in Beverly Hills right now? Uh, let's make a say 100, 100 homes. So let's say one of them was, let's say one guy owns 70 of them. Yeah. Now, this is not to scale this metaphor, yeah. but it makes the point. And if he were looking to sell, if he needed to sell, if he actually absolutely Had needed to sell, to sell 70 homes, what if what if he owned those 70s on a warehouse line, those 70 homes financed on a warehouse line from a bank that itself was in trouble and could call that loan back on three days yeah. or on two days or so on one day? So flood the market with distress. How would What would happen if this guy called you up and said, Compass, I got 70 homes to sell and I got to do it by the end of next week? What would happen to the rest of the market for Collapse. a while? it would get thrown into complete yeah, disjointed complete, chaos. Complete chaos. Yeah. And that's what happens in the markets. When you get when you get certain portions of the market, which have taken so it's irresponsible- it's a supply and demand type it, of- In the short run, any tradable security is simply a commodity. It's yeah. merely worth wherever the equilibrium price is between buy and sell. That's why when the markets absolutely deteriorate, you can get enormous bargains. That's Warren Buffett's Mr. Market, right? Mm -hmm. That's where he says, let Mr. Market give me the opportunities, yeah. right? So that happened. Uh, that's what would happen if you had a big giant force sale in real estate. It's a much more slow moving yeah. market. You tend not to see that. But in the capital markets, uh, it happens rather quickly, rather brutally. And it actually happens reasonably often several times within a given decade. 
Uh, and that's Got what it. happened my first day at work. And um, <laughs> I'll never forget the, the head of investment banking uh, at that time was a guy named Terry McGeed, uh, kind of a one of the longstanding uh, uh, senior officers at Morgan Stanley. He's left some time ago. But in the very first speech, he came out and everyone was quite frazzled. They had to come out and welcome a bunch of employees to their first day uh, yeah. on the job at, at a reasonably storied firm when all hell was breaking yeah. loose. And he said, Not look, what uh, you'd expect. he says, I got to tell you guys, this is the best of times and this is the worst of times. Um, he said, I got good news and bad news for you. He's like, the good news is I say that every time. Every class. So the bad news is, I believe it. <laughs> this time it's as real as it gets. Right. So we didn't know. So that's we, your introduction, the Morgan Stanley. We didn't the know if we were going to be around for, for very long. Uh, you know, uh, that said, though, most crises uh, come and go, uh, and they really do. And, you know, if history tells us anything, staying power itself uh, is is generally rewarded. Uh, definitely it was a seems short period of time later, and, you know, we were cooking again. The tech and telecom market was on fire. Uh, there were IPOs galore. M&A was flourishing. Uh, eventually, the emerging markets recovered. Um, and then several years later now, fast forwarding to 2001. The dot-com bust. The dot-com and telecom bust. I was in the private equity group at Morgan Stanley at the time, working mostly on uh, kind of difficult telecom workouts uh, that uh, of investments. So you were right in the thick of it. I was right in the thick of it. And uh, we, um, at that point, I sort of realized that um, there was a transformation occurring, right? That uh, private equity was going to take a while to kind of build your career there. Investment banking was to be royaled for some period of time. And meanwhile, in the public markets, if you're invest, if you're a public market investor, mm -hmm. you don't have to negotiate transactions, right? Uh, and so the hedge fund industry was then exploding. There was a huge opportunity for me to join a group that had just spun out of Goldman Sachs, okay. uh, but which uh, really couldn't re recruit from Goldman Sachs at the time due to, you know, I, I imagine non-competes and non-solicits. Uh, so or you joined that group. That I was, was I was very lucky uh, to join a firm. All right, called, so yeah. let's slow down and dumb it down a little. Hedge, let's dumb it down. Hedge now. fund. Let's get into what a hedge fund is. Obviously, it's you know right. you're hedging investments and trying to tip it the odds into your favor so that you can make a better return and beat the market. Um, but let's hear it from you. What what was what is like the 101 hedge fund yeah. definition? I'm going to give you one A and one B. Okay, not perfect. even 101. Okay. <clears throat> the word, and I know there's a lot of different. The word is, the, I'm going to tell you, this is what it used to mean, and, and this is what it actually means okay, today in, co in colloquial usage. Perfect. What That's it what used to know. mean was you hedged. You hedged, hedged your, your bets. bets. So if you bought $100 worth of stock, you you're shorted, you're shorted on 90 side. or 80. Uh, and there's different ways to figure out exactly how much you should based on how much risk you want. It, that's that what was, it, that that was, was what it initially meant. It was a classic hedge fund, right? Yeah. You had risk on both sides, right? It was like, I'm going to drive with a foot on the brake and a foot on the accelerator and just get the difference just, just enough. And in that difference, that's where there's tons of opportunity to be made yeah. if you get it right and you can lose your ass if you get it wrong. In theory, a perfect hedge fund would be long and short the exact same amount, but the composition of the longs would outperform the composition of the shorts or the they would both they would both make money uh, in the perfectly both ideal ways. sense generating returns on both sides of that book your shorts go down your longs go up and vice uh, versa as the markets change and you take out all market and, and you and effectively by being long and short you don't have any net market exposure okay right? so, so that, that's that's the classic exposure what is come to mean these days when most people say hey i've got a hedge fund because we went through a by the way the number of hedge funds is shrinking dramatically yeah i've but, heard that but uh, and there's reasons for that which are interesting and, and we're talking about uh, i don't know if in this context but um for for, for years and years and years, everybody's been talking about hedge funds. Uh, right. All it meant for the last 
10 years was I invest in the public markets or something like that. Maybe it's private debt, but something reasonably yeah. tradable. And I take a percentage of the profits. Correct. Um, and that is what most people mean when they say hedge fund. And that's what it kind of means in colloquial usage, and then, even if they're not hedged. Right. And then a hedge fund versus just going to a financial advisor. Hedge fund, what's the business model when you someone owns a hedge fund? You get a percentage of the profits and a fee up front. You get a management fee based on the amount of assets that you have. Yeah. Uh, and yes, and then there's an incentive fee based on your performance. Profits. That's the classic a, model. That's the classic model. Versus no, it's, it's, a financial it's, advisor that may just take a percentage. But that may just take a management fee. Yeah. That's exactly right. Got it. All right, so, so look, there's pluses and minuses to both. You've, been, you've spent the last 15 years uh, running a hedge fund, Archer Capital. Uh, 13, yeah. 14 years? 13. 13 yeah. years. So that's where you've been. You've been running your own Fed. You have a partner in that. Yep. Uh, you've, yep. got, you've launched it here in LA or out of New York? Um, so we launched the business in, uh, in New York in 2005, in late 2005, eventually with the idea of operating uh, the business significantly out of Los Angeles. It was a real play for me to get home. Yeah. Uh, so we opened up the Los Angeles business in 2008. Um, and for the you know entire time over those 13 years, AUM, meaning our assets under management, approximately around a billion on average, wow. maybe 900-ish or something like that. Under. Kind of went down. It started small. You know, we started with, um, you know, with a with a desk like about this big. Are these people you know investing bucks. or is it people you don't know or it's a combination? Like where do, where do investors come from to a hedge fund? Well, it, you know, like any business where you're starting up, right? And back Start then we were starting up. You start friends with people, and family or people that or trust you. Or let's say quasi-institutional investors, but ones that you know pretty well. Relationships. Uh, that, relationships, right? Yeah. And then over time, uh, you become more of an institutional uh, presence where people fo are looking. Fo folks are coming to you and you may not know them already and you're forming relationships. Yeah. So, But mostly it's pension funds and endowments. You know, that's and, the business I ran. And do you and do hedge funds have a specialty? Like, oh, I do manufacturing. I do technology. I do retail. Is there certain industries or sectors that yep, uh, your hedge fund or any hedge fund, would, <clears throat> or is it? Uh, right, so I'll tell you what we specialized in for, for years. And yeah. it changed a little bit over time as the markets change and when markets change, opportunity changes, right? right. How do you make money in real estate? Well, it might be luxury homes one year, it might I'm be still apartments trying to figure the that next. Out, Josh, how do you make money? Real Something tells me you're doing pretty well, <laughs> DB. I'm not worried. Oh, Mr. Good, uh, if you're not worried, then Los I'm... Angeles impresario oh, over here. You. Yeah, uh, as long as you're not worried, I'm good. I'm confident, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm not only not worried. I'm cautiously highly... optimistic. No, I'm just oh. flat out optimistic. Okay, when it comes. I really I'll am. Take it. Thank I really you. am. You're, I'll take it. You're a winner. Take that to um, the bank. Thank you. So we invested in screwed up companies. I mean, or we invested in companies that were pretty decent but screwed up in a particular way. I mean, they're in distress. <clears throat> financially or what when you mean screwed up right so it could be a few different ways they could have an operational issue uh that was in need of redress right perhaps uh Companies, a company had underutilized factories, or they had underinvested uh, their capital okay. expenditures for years at a time. Understood. Or maybe they were an engineering. There's one I could think of, particularly I won't mention the name. It's a public company that had a very, very well, highly refined engineering culture. And they were gadget guys, right? Very refined engineering culture, but you couldn't find a salesman anywhere around the place. And the gadgets were more important than the return on investment in the gadgets. Got so it. capital budgeting was a little weak as Got well. It. Okay. So you know every so you know, different issues depending you, on the just the like in real estate. You know if you really want to make money, you have to buy an asset that has a problem that can be fixed. Yeah. Right. And that's that's what we specialized in. Right. It was looking at companies uh, that have a particular discrepancy, a gap between its potential and yeah. what it's actually performing at. That's on an operational side. Now, there's also plenty of companies that are just miscapitalized. Their debt and equity ratios are off. Management's not doing the right thing. The board isn't particularly aligned with, with shareholders and yeah. is not doing the right thing. So in every given, in any given situation, 
there's going to be something that's causing some the price. need, some yeah. issue that you feel you can address and fix and add value. Or that someone else will do and you can ride along uh, in well, those that's, cases. That's a, my next question was going yeah. to say, so when you have a hedge fund and you're one of the companies you want to invest in needs, I don't know, a factory operational <laughs> specialist. Do, do you have operational specialists that work at a hedge fund with you or you're like a consultant where you say, OK, we know the best person that does this type of factory operations <clears throat> is this group. Let's get you hire yeah. the, the people that are needed or the, the things that are. How does it sure. actually or is it all part of your yeah. company? I would say it's 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 a range. Okay? It is a range. I'll address the industry as a whole for, for this answer because it is kind of interesting. Right. If you invest in a BlackRock equity fund, mm -hmm. right, they're not typically being active. In fact, they may be a robot at the end of the day, <laughs> buying large cap stocks, right? Yeah. Um, if you're in a if you're in a Vanguard fund that buys Boeing stock, no one's doing anything, Just, right? No one's doing anything, right? At buy the, and hold. Right. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, you will have uh, active investors that are a little bit more hands-on, right? And that can be anything from like a try-in. Let's take a very famous uh, active investor or activist investor as is sometimes the, the term is sometimes employed yeah uh, like nelson peltz uh at, at Tryon partners right okay he's a significant investor uh and has board presence on ge procter and gamble pentair mongolese wow, the big right? s&p yeah a large company some of the mm -hmm. right you know large significant companies but he's exerting a real he's a change agent right he's finding issues with each of these companies which due to entrenched management or uh, maybe just a non-modernized management or board that's not perfectly aligned. Not again, not casting any dispersions on the management teams or the boards of those companies. Yeah. But there's there's clearly in in his line of work, he is recognizing he's looking for those. He's things. looking at a gap yeah. between what it can do and what it is doing, and then he is applying in his particular case. I think like a very high-minded, constructive value add. Uh, approach to that business. And that's the approach that that I endorse uh, most wholeheartedly. Uh, I don't really come from the school of investors that uh, likes to cause trouble for management team and boards and rattle cages. And I'm, I'm not saying there's not a place for that. Yeah. I'm saying that's not what, what, that's not what, I, what I do. Anytime we've ever been involved in influencing a company, it's typically been more along the lines of partnership, uh, you know, going to management, going to the board and having an earnest discussion about what, what should happen. Yeah. And you know what, if you're right enough, if what you're saying is compelling, they should realize that and they should realize that th th this is an opportunity to fix it in a polite, respectful, proactive way. Otherwise, the rough guys do ultimately show Come up. over and yeah. push you out. Is right. it common where a company uh, that you, a hedge funds looking into to, to help or partnering with where they would say, OK, we need someone to run it and you or someone at your company becomes the CEO or becomes the head of marketing because they have a marketing need or you actually get like human yeah. labor from your, your own hedge fund that just slides over like, oh, here's our marketing yeah. guy. Does that happen? Typically. Or you find someone from yeah. outside that's a specialist. Typically, it's finding someone from outside. Now, I do think there's room in the marketplace for a very operationally focused value add public market investment firm. Uh, but most hedge funds, I'd say the overwhelming amount, don't do that. It's they're wor the they're working with capital. yeah, they're working with outside operational consultants, what's if, if at all, uh, if even that. But there is a significant amount of room. I think there's a significant opportunity in the marketplace right now for um, more long cycle capital with a more operationally intense approach to doing due diligence and implementing change. Mm -hmm. uh, and because you, you just don't see a lot of that right now. Yeah. So. Uh, 
hedge funds and the big money and it's but, but now we're being esoteric yeah. where we didn't want to be. <laughs> we won't do, we won't yeah. go there. Yeah. Here's something I exactly. want to add on to. I think when I Let's think about hedge there. fund and when we talk about hedge fund guys and these big players and all the, the big money and the glamour and the lifestyle. But I know we had a conversation at, we were having dinner at our house a couple of weeks ago or a month or so ago and you were saying, you know, I wake I've woken <clears> up at five or four thirty every day for the last 20 years and every night I go to bed with, you were just casually with the pressure of whatever my investment fund is and every morning I wake up with the pressure. That's not stuff that I think that the rest of us think about it. You know, you think about your jobs, the pressure of having a billion dollars that it's your responsibility every night, some issue can blow up in the world and you're responsible. So you gotta be able to sleep every night and wake up every morning with that pressure. That's immense amount of responsibility. And how have you been able to deal with that? Is that just the makeup of anyone that takes on that kind of job? But I guess clearly what I'm getting at is there's so much glamour involved with how much money you can make in hedge funds, but what people probably don't realize is the pressure and the stress and what that would really be like when you have to wake up that early right. every morning with fortunes show, on the line. Show me an industry. Show me a person in an industry, whether it be tech, whether it be athletics, whether it be entertainment, whether it be real estate, where someone is doing extraordinarily well and it's as easy as they're making it look, right? The never, bottom line is- Never, never, of right, course. It's a grind. It's hard work. You got to get up in the morning. You got to do your work. Uh, if you have customers in this particular case of money management, you've got actual investors, yeah. you have a fiduciary duty with respect to their capital, you owe it to them uh, to be thinking about them uh, at, at every necessary juncture. Uh, and that's the rhythm of the business. Yeah. Uh, and there's no escaping it. And if you live on the West Coast, then the, you have to get up three and hours the equity early. markets tend to be more East Coast hours driven. <laughs> what, what time you do you usually it. get up for work? By the way, I take solace in the fact that there's a lot of guys living in New York who trade Europe. Uh, so, you know, everybody's dealing with the they time zone problem. Initiatives. Everyone's dealing with the time zone So what problem. are you wake up at five, at four? At one? Yeah, I mean, typically speaking, the rhythm of the the rhythm of, of, a, of a hedge fund existence out yeah. here is probably, you know, you're probably up at 4.30, Oof. but with one eye open, just making sure something really ridiculous yeah. didn't happen. Then you try to get back to sleep till maybe 5.15 or so. Oh, good, uh, you sleep uh, into 5.15. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, the, just like you. you always get up 15 minutes before the alarm goes off. I know you do. The yeah, alarm hasn't woken me up I don't even since I was 20. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't even need it either, years. right? I can, I can wake up without an alarm and guess within a minute what time it is. No, I have an alarm uh, on that's if, my parlor if it's trick. three in the afternoon and I haven't slept in three <clears> days because the kids kept on like, I need a 20-minute nap. Then I put on the alarm to wake me up because I have a showing at four. Yeah. But other in the morning, I'm not. That's just you're up. I mean, usually yeah. I'm up because the kids are up, but no, I'm not up at four or five. Right. It's habitual, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, but you're not up at four or five. But no, you're not like, up at four or five. You're working late hours though, right? You know, uh, yeah. And, and, I mean, and you're it's seven days a week, but it's not and, and uh, every day 4 a.m. It's a, There's, a, there's yeah. an intensity and a relentlessness to that. But yeah, you know, that's like the, the Kobe Bryant Mamba mentality. He was on the track at 3.30, 4 a.m. every day of his career for 20 years when everyone was sleeping. You know, look, you want to be the greatest in the most yeah. competitive field, you got to do extraordinary, over-the-top type of uh, work ethic And situations. I am far from the greatest in an extraordinary field. Uh, uh, well, but, but I, but I'm just I, saying, if you want to compete, if you, you want, want to compete, compete at the highest level, let's just put it that then way. Then you got to get up and you got to get the job done. And yeah. You can't be sleeping through it, period, no matter what you do. I would encourage- No shortcuts. Yep, I would encourage everybody, I would encourage your viewers to uh, read up on Mark Wahlberg's. Let's bring in a more culturally- uh, Yeah, uh, you know, a, a more culturally a lot going example. on. He's got a lot going on. A he's got lot a lot of businesses. He's got a bunch of kids. 
Has um, he had five kids? I think I think it was four, but I could four, be wrong. All four. I know is that he was taking all his kids through Whole Foods when my wife was taking all our kids. <laughs> and they took one look at it like, wow, you have your hands full. Yeah. Like it's like, you know, everyone can relate everyone to that experience. To. <sighs> He's up at four in the morning, right? Yeah. He gets up in the morning. Uh, and I don't know exactly in what order this occurs, but you know, he uh, He's devotes training time. And- He's training. He devotes time for prayer. Yeah. Uh, he eats. He works and he's in bed early, right? Yeah. And it may look easy from a distance and it may look glamorous, but the fact of the matter he's is- He's working his ass off. Yeah. There's yeah, no, no one who succeeds it. in life without working their ass off. I agree. Period. I think that's a really important piece of information and advice because I know there's probably young people that say, hey, I want to get into Wall Street, I want to be a hedge fund, want to get into this or that. But I think that's the advice. There is no shortcuts. you got to work your ass off. There are no shortcuts. And you, if there you're not no prepared shortcuts. to do that, you know, you're not going to be able to compete. And I agree. That, that's there are the no shortcuts story. in life. So getting back to waking up, do you have a routine? Uh, do you do a morning meditation, workout? What is uh, What my, gets my, you going in the morning? My, or is it like, I got five kids, here comes Ben, here comes Sorry, here they come. Uh, I, I do everything I can to get out in the morning before they wake up. You know, that's the, that's a, that's a secret. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. I got to start doing that. That is a good idea. And, and, you feel, and you felt sorry for me that I got up so early. Yeah, you're like, ah. Sometimes yeah. when I leave the house in the morning, I feel like, oh, it's a relief. Look, I get up early around five in the morning. I check my critical bit. That's what time yeah. I actually move my body That's out of time bed. to start. I check my critical business. Depending on what's happening, I'm either into the office uh, to address it, or maybe I can address it, you know, a little bit remotely, get to the gym. Uh, and then get in the office by seven or something yeah. like that. But, you know, you kind of have a few A-B switches depending yeah. on whether the world's burning or someone, you know, just like, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you got a client pounding on you, um, you There's know, certain your, fires your, that are being put out. Your routine just changed, right? Yes. That's the way you life works. You get derailed works. and you get back on track when you can. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears. You can't gears. say, excuse me, I need to stick to my routine, sir. Yeah, uh, yeah sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Get back to you yeah. in four hours. Right. Excuse me. <laughs> After I'm, my meditation and my Pilates. I'm, yeah, I'm meditating. I'm working on my core. surfing and I'll be back. There's a swell. Yeah, I'm back wanna, from Malibu. Yeah. I'll get in touch with you. I don't want to interrupt my squat, my perfect squat here. No, right, unless yeah. you're Brian Burkett, then Brian Burkett, uh, he's surfing that swell. He's getting back to you. Uh, he's a, it's all business model driven. The avocados, <laughs> the avocado are business, slow, man, it grows it's slow. They don't, they, they don't scream. The Dos Pueblos ranch business. It's a different type of business. Yeah, but I'll so, tell you what, man. You show up to his ranch and take an axe to the, the water pipeline. He'll be there at three in the morning. That's working, right. You know, that's the, uh, right. The water so, well mm-hmm. runs dry. We had a great, a great barbecue. Guys can't trip at Dos Pueblos. That was. Incredible. That, that was, was a, and this is an interesting point because I want to bring this in. We talk about we talk about this, and I know you're you're big on uh, family values and purposeful values and living a full life and a healthy life. You're very mindful and thoughtful of how you're raising kids. You have five kids. It's so challenging, as we know, growing up in a big city like LA. The entitlement, the wealth, what the kids see at an early age, the tech that they see, the screens. You've really seem to well, like my wife and I always look at you and Michelle and go, wow, they really got it under control, but really have thought through and seem to spend time with trying to raise your kids. I don't want to say the right way. There's no right way. Everything's everyone's different, but in a way that's um, unusual and unique for today's parent in terms of your kids are outside a lot. They seem to be using their hands, learning things not just on tech and not just entitled doing the crazy stuff that <laughs> most of us all are, are seeing every day. But I, what, where does that come from for you? Speak to that a little bit. Cause I think that's, it's very impressive and very admirable and uh, it can't be easy, but you know, tell me about why that's important to you and 
your your views on you know raising kids in the big right. city. <clears throat> well, look, if I felt earlier in our conversation that the career compliments and I joked were Kabuki theater, this one I, I don't joke about. You know, this is the that is the highest compliment uh, that I can try to earn. Um, you know, if I look at you and I ask you, you know, what the hell are you really here for? Yeah. Right. You're not curing cancer. You're awesome no. at what you do, but you're not curing, curing cancer. And no. buying low and selling high isn't curing cancer yeah. either. Right? Closing escrows isn't saving lives. You're not saving, <laughs> no. you're not saving no, humanity. You're right. So, you know, it's, it, it's the most important work we do. I agree. Um, without question. It's, and the most it, complicated. There's it, no manual. <laughs> there's, there's no manual. You figure it out. You know, you're complimenting Michelle and me from a distance. Uh, I mean, you know us really well, but. We spend, we have an infinite amount of insecure moments. Yeah. Are we really doing this right? Did did she really just say that? Yeah. Is my son really that lazy? Yeah. Is that going to persist till late in life? Yes. How many so times you're have you having the same anxieties that the rest of us have? Inclu I'm sure you're it, human, it, but. including the ones that are really lunatic. Like, oh my God, maybe his fingers can't really write. You know, <sighs> may, maybe you know there's a problem. Oh my maybe God, maybe he can't hit a fastball opposite field home run 450 feet. What am I going to do? Just like his dad. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, you know, or you know, or, or I can't believe the, the 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 teacher at school really said that. Is that true? Yeah. Let me listen again. Oh, that's BS. I'm not sure I agree with that, or I really have to admit I agree with that. So look, yeah. it's hard work. It's hard so work. So it's constantly Every, evolving. Sure, of course. You're trying to constantly improve and figure it out, and it's yeah. not easy for you guys either. That's good to hear. Because if it was easy to have five kids. Brother, <laughs> brother, it's chronic. It's a chronic game. It's a chronic ground game. You got to love it, and yeah. you got to believe it, and you got to believe there's no higher yeah. purpose. And you will be rewarded for it, and your kids will be really happy about it. I bring to it one extra that feature. I said I didn't grow up with brothers and sisters. Yeah, you grew right? up the opposite. Yeah, so I know child. how important this is, and I'm still learning. Right? I'm like, oh, that's a birth order thing. Well, I, you know, that's I how, never yeah. worry when I'm sending a kid to your house that oh god, they're going to be having ding dongs and playing, uh, you know, no mine, dongs, Minecraft yeah. for five hours. I know they're going to be at Daddy Camp LaBelle. Yeah. They're going to be playing ball. They're going to yeah. be outside running around. They may be doing a science project or some <laughs> 3D imagination. <laughs> Whatever they're doing, I know they're doing something productive. I can't say that, you know, that's the case for most people. I can't say that's the case at my own house. I'm always battling it. I don't know. So, I, I, ben likes going to your house. Good. It's, it's yeah, because yeah, he's probably good. like, yeah, I can, he gets away with stuff. <laughs> yeah, he gets away with Get a, a little of... extra sweets, you know. Ben, Ben's <laughs> got right. the sweet tip. Fair enough. So, yeah, Fair enough. Let me go a little further with Thanks this. Thanks for telling me. Why, um, I know it's important for you to get off the grid. It is, it is for me. Wilderness, camping, fishing, getting yeah. the kids outdoors, getting away from the city. We talk <clears> about <throat> all the time. Oh, we, yeah. love, get, let's, we should buy a ranch and fish and live off yeah. the land. I mean, we've done those and you, Pueblos. And, 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 you're start, and you're starting to send me some right now. By uh, yeah. the way, I can't afford any of those ones yeah, you're sending well, me. Yeah. So just letting you know. Well, the, yeah. then you should get in a different business. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Hedge funds is not lucrative. <laughs> I'm assuming those are highly you gotta, negotiable you gotta in get, this environment. Uh, yeah. You need a Mike Trout type contract. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if I could do one tenth of what Mike Trout could do, if any of us could. Yeah, yeah, if any of us, I mean, that would just be certainly wouldn't be sitting at this desk to live in to that Joshua. body for a day. Oh. Would just, you know, oh, just to have feel what that feels like. One moment. Yeah. Uh, so, would, would you do? Do you you go to the wilderness? So you take your kids. Uh, yeah. You know. Right. So you know what? One of the interesting things is, like, I ask a lot of dads. Uh, you know, how about going on a trip? We've talked about yeah. it a lot. We made one, right? And you know what? Like, a lot of people don't have time. They can't do it, and. I actually think that folks sort of over discount the present uh, far too far to, to far too great of a degree. You really do have the time, right? What's the real consequence of unplugging for a couple of days and getting out into nature with your kid? Uh, but if you can't do that, if you can't unplug because you convince yourself you're too tied to your stuff or you're you're worried too much, probably unnecessarily. Um, 
you know, then you'll spend the week, you won't do anything. You'll spend the week griping about the fact that your kids look at screens all the time. Correct. Right. And you just created yes. this, right. You have to break free. You have to do it. You must. And it's so hard, but you have to do it. Things yep. are hard. Life is hard. You have to, you have to be proactive about it. I mean, we had a great time. We went to Dos Pueblos. Don't be with afraid the kids. if your kids wind up doing with what you tents. do. Yeah. We had, uh, we barbecued steaks, ate with our hands, had bottles yep. of wine with no glasses. Yep. The coyotes were making, no, it was brilliant. Yeah. We played yep. a, uh, we played an interesting uh, version of uh, cornhole. Yeah, uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> we did a lot of good, a lot of good things. Um, where else can I take this? There's so many different things. Let's get into your outside of business and family interests. I know you're a huge reader. Uh, it's a big part of what you do. You've always told me, oh, the more I read, the more topics I can go deep dive on, the more perspective I can have when I'm analyzing companies and doing what I do every day. But I think for you, it's, it seems to be more than just having a broad knowledge base so that you can invest better and have a better skill set for your job. I mean, you seem, totally. seem to be passionate about reading and certain topics. Yeah. I know you're very into the military, very, you're a big flyer, aviation, is a, it's, yeah. which I don't know. I don't think I have any other friends that I could say are really into the military and really into aviation. Yeah. So, well, I'm into supporting me. our veterans. Uh, and, I know that's yeah, big for you. Yeah. And that's, uh, so, you know, on a couple points here, uh, let's just talk reading for a sec. I spoke at Columbia University a few years back to yeah. their you know, investment program. And someone said, you know, what should I read to become a good investor? And they were looking for a recommendation for a business book, yeah. right? How to be a great investor. Fundamental. Warren Buffett's written a book. Yeah. Right? Seth Klarman's Warren written Buffett. a book, uh, which I have a first printing, first edition of, by the way. And it's a of classic. course you yeah, do. It, uh, it was hard to get, but I have it. Yeah. If, that, if anyone ever wants to see it, you, I'll show it to you yeah, uh, for a minute. But, uh, and then, uh, so, but you know what my answer? Answer is right. I think that the skill set, the financial skill set, uh, that's easily taught, right? I mean, that's a couple years in school, if that. Anybody with a reasonable yeah. brain can kind of figure out how to go through the financial motions. The numbers. Really, what you should be reading is about the world, right? You should understand the context in which your investment decisions are made, so you understand appropriate inputs, right? Hundred percent. So reading, right? You need to be a citizen of the world. You need to. You can't be a good investor. You can hardly be a good businessman. I, I agree. Kind of, right. So I think you let your curiosity fuel you. You know, my answer is you should be reading about geopolitics. You should be reading about uh, demographics. Humongous impacts, right? If you want to understand if we're hmm. in an inflationary or disinflationary economy for the yeah. next 25 years, you better understand demographics, which means you need to understand the composition of our population, how Age. it ages, at what pace, right? How does that compare to the housing supply? What it, how yeah. productive are people at different stages of life? Who's getting displaced, right? These are fascinating. But this yes. is what drives our society, right? Yeah. Um, and so you kind of have to have that in your brain in order to do anything, certainly in the investing world, right? And I've just always been uh, curious and a big reader. I never had a choice. Uh, there was no yeah. one to play with. Um, so that, I just thought that's it was so it poignant when you, you've said that to me. And I thought, you know, it's so true. I try to read and get informed on several topics too, just yeah. because everyone I meet is a potential client and I want to be well-versed in everything. I haven't dive as deep as you or as broad as you on certain <laughs> things. But I just think it's such a important point for anybody to be a citizen of the world, to educate yourself on different topics, go deep on topics that interest you, of course. And, you know, I just think it's, it's a phenomenal. But if you're feeling like with all the kids in the job, it's hard to read. Yeah. I'm right there with you, man. The, um, you know, it's so you don't a, get, you don't get your two hours of quiet reading. Uh, yeah. Not as, home. not as much as the old days. That's for uh, sure. I don't get quiet anything at home. I know you're uh, also big into um, nonprofit charities. Yep. You're big in, involved with Cedars. Yep. Let's talk and about a few the, other. Let's talk about the military for a second. Yeah. I just circle yeah, yeah, back to that because you asked about that. Uh, look, you know, we have a really interesting situation where we have, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of veterans uh, who have served overseas, yeah. right? By the numbers, most in Afghanistan and Iraq, those who served in in, in, in combat theater, in recent- but certainly all over the world, right? Yeah. And on a much smaller level, but equally acute, we have members of our intelligence community uh, who have served uh, overseas and, yeah. and under extremely trying circumstances. And we're, we have a really interesting dynamic in this country right now. We live in the city of Los Angeles. I want you to tell me right now, how many people did you grow up with who are veterans? Very few. Very few. Less, fewer than five of all the kids you knew growing up. I mean, up. probably less than that. Yeah. yeah probably. I don't know if I could even name one. To you tell don't you. even know if you can name one. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And how many people in your professional existence, um, you know, are, are veterans, former officers, former enlisted folks? I mean, if we yeah. walk the halls of Compass, what's the... Uh, very few. There may be some. There may be one or two. Some, or here certainly or in my immediate network and my social sphere, it's very yeah. rare that I yeah. that somebody has exactly. that, that background. So we have a fascinating situation in this country now, which we have to deal with, where the folks who serve in the military uh, and who do very, very difficult work oh, and very loyal and very un- patriotic the work, hardest work. I, uh, are separated. It generally comes from a population that's different than our large, than, than where the coastal Fancy pants, yeah. Live the big and, and, I'm urban fan, and I'm a coastal fancy pants, so I'm yeah. not trying to to, no, to, 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 to harsh on us here. Uh, yeah, I'm not trying to harsh your narrative, mouth, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's certainly not a political narrative. Yeah. It's a political entire yeah. apolitical entirely. But as a nation, I've always felt it's become abundantly clear to me that we risk viewing that our that our large that our decision makers and our wealth and our concentrated wealth centers, yeah, uh, and where we have so much talent in these big cities in our big coastal cities, view tend to view the military as and veterans more as a Praetorian Guard, a French Foreign Legion, a, yeah. a, 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 a force apart, right? And so when we walk down the street or we have a dinner and someone says like strongly advocates military action in a foreign country, yet doesn't have a son that serves or doesn't have friends who serve and doesn't have friends who totally serve or serve. Totally disconnected from the, what the consequences would be. From it's very easy to say we should bomb country X when yeah. your son's not in the B1, yeah. right? Uh, and, or nowhere near it. And uh, think about that perspective. If your child is in the military now, now think about any military engagement and your views on it. If your child is going into that battle zone, how would you think about whether Correct. you think we really need to be there? That's right. And so we have trouble raising money for veterans, right? They come back, they're busted up. Oh, PTSD so is a huge issue. It's and so, so sad. They right. put the risk their lives and yeah. they don't have the support. I just find so that I, just I, I, horrendous. Totally. So it's my, I view it as, as one of my primary philanthropic missions. You've taken on that mission as, hey, I got to do what I can to in to our in, in this city, right? Where people are really open to it. People want to get involved. I think you're Folks right. Folks want to support it. They they know they need to, but they don't have enough on ramps and they don't have enough interfaces to I do it. I agree with that. But when but when, I'd want to get involved, of course you do. And I only know through you the, the few things that you've. And you when know. we ask, we get. Yeah, we get. A lot of people show up and really care. And if you do enough of it, not only do you get support for the people who need it, from the people who are able to give it. But you change attitudes, and you melt, and you and you and you recreate a sense of community around that particular, around that particular group, yeah. and it's so important. I think it's so important. There is a huge gap. Between, These are our salt of the earth heroes. Yeah, and it's a huge gap between the respect and the admiration, and we need to be able to educate and understand that those people have to be honored and appreciated and supported. I mean, they're they're keeping us safe. They've been doing that for generations, and. There's just they're so underfunded and there's so many issues and you could see the homelessness all over our city. Yeah. It's getting worse and it's a lot of it is around 
you know, the VA and the military type stuff. That's a whole other topic. But um, tell me about, I know you have a foundation that's involved with that. Uh, uh, yeah, so I don't have a foundation. But oh, I you're serve, involved I, with the foundation? Yeah, so I, I serve on the board of directors of the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation. Yeah. Now, this is more of an, uh, this is not, uh, does, does not address explicitly uh, the needs of military veterans. Yes. It addresses the needs of the families of uh, officers of the Central Intelligence Agency. Okay, specifically for that. Yeah, who have been uh, either uh, killed, have lost their lives, or been significantly impaired uh, while on active duty. Yeah. And in that particular community, uh, they don't have the luxury of uh, speaking their story in sunlight. Everything's private. Everything's Things covert. are quite private, yeah. right? Many of them uh, were operating in a more clandestine fashion when uh, when, when their life kind of went off the rails or when yes. they sustained an injury or, God forbid, a death, which happens. And someone's got to take care of those kids. Yeah. Uh, and There's so that's families what, and kids and that's wives what this foundation and husbands. Does. And, yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. 100%. You're also very involved with Cedar sinai Are you a trustee? Talk, talk me about your-, your no, no, The trustees are-, are, the, are uh, I will be a trustee in like 25 years oh. or 30 years, but I'm not- I'm, I'm not, getting you, ahead of you, myself. You got to, yeah. Uh, talk to me about your involvement right. with Cedar sinai and what you're doing with yep. that. So uh, at Cedars, I was very fortunate when I moved back to Los Angeles from New York, uh, one of my first bosses uh, out of college was very involved with Cedar sinai and says, look, you're, you've moved to Los Angeles. You need a charity. And this is a really important one. And, you know, as we've grown up here in this uh, part of town, right, we've had babies born there. All my kids we've were born at other, Cedars. Yeah, I was born at Cedars. Cedars 11 on. Is that right? Cedars yeah. 11 on, right? I mean, they, they're, they're now, right? Yeah. Totally. Um, I was born at Hollywood Presbyterian, no particular oh. reason. Um, very edgy. But very that's edgy. very edgy. <laughs> Back then, I don't know if it was edgy or just in a dump, yeah. but, uh, you know, <laughs> but it's edgy now. Uh, it's edgy now. And, you know, and we've seen folks on the other end of the life cycle, yeah. you know, at Cedars. This is an incredibly important institution in our lives. And Cedar is actually very interesting, right? It's not just a community hospital. Very few people know this. They're a PhD granting national academic research institution as well. They do a significant amount of translational medical research. Um, they are uh, a consolidator uh, amongst hospitals in the Southland. Uh, so it's a it's a metropolis. Uh, it's a yeah, medical a metropolis. Institution. Yeah. So I was very fortunate at a, you know, I, I joke around. I think my primary qualification was my age uh, because uh, many folks on the board were, you know, looking forward, were kind of a decade or a decade and a half away Got from it. age. Yeah, there was you a need the to. median age down. Yeah, they needed to some fresh bring blood. In to, to cultivate uh, talent. Yes. And I was prepared to work hard and devote my time. Uh, and it's been a fantastic experience. Uh, so I serve on the board of directors, uh, and it's an honor, total honor to do so, where I get Good to uh, really kind of dig in uh, on some of the issues uh, that uh, afflict Cedars in general, but also give me insight into the broader uh, health system. Uh, and then I also serve on the investment committee for the what we call the endowment. Uh, which is a, So you're able to use your investment experience. Yeah. With well, and, it's, and it's been a real learning experience as well. And that's, yeah. a, is that billions of dollars in an endowment? Yeah, so this situation? is public. It's right there on the Cedar sinai yeah. annual report. Yeah. You know, their total investable sums uh, right now approximate, depending on what you count, what you don't count, call it, you know, brackets around $3 billion, maybe more if you yeah. include some other things. And so it's been a really incredible experience. So that brings me to one of your favorite words. Oh, boy. Epistemology. Yeah, epistemology. Epistemology. You ever hear of that one? Today. Um, and how that impacts decision making, how that yeah. impacts, I mean, I guess all facets of your life, but certainly with investing. If I'm going to teach my kids anything, it's this word. So right? tell me the. Have you guys heard of fake news? No. Never There's heard that news? term. Never heard that term, right? Yeah. Have you ever heard of BS? 
I've heard of that. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so um, the world believes a lot of BS, right? I mean, sure. we can only really know something about one or two things really, really, really well. And we're inherently, as humans, we're very distracted. Uh, we're forced to think about a lot of things, but we can only really know. Yeah. There's so much noise. There's so much stuff coming out. There's so much so noise. So what constitutes knowledge? And if you're in a business, whether it's real estate, uh, whether it's investing in public markets, whether it's aviation, I'm a pilot, right? Yeah. You can choose to believe what you see or not, right? In the engineering and hard science professions, there is a high premium paced, uh, placed on knowledge. Epistemology means it's the science, of, uh, effectively, it's the study of how do you know what you know? What right. constitutes knowledge, right? Is it and, sort of like what makes, how do you know something is really right versus whether it's just an opinion or, you know, you've, or it's a deliberate deception yeah. or it's BS, right? When you think about all the information that we have and uh, the way we live our lives, so much of it could be wrong and is wrong. Yeah, that's right. right. So this is get cuts to the heart of that. Right. That. So logical inference, um, you know, being inductive to kind of get to some hunches and then being deductive through the application of some pretty well, you know, honed logical and critical reasoning facilities can get you to at least an attempt can hone down what is actually knowledge, right? And versus if you can, opinion or versus anything else. Versus opinion, yeah. versus decept deception, deception opinion. Right. And um, if you can identify the gap then you should be able to make a lot of money on an investment. Yeah. Uh, uh, you should be able to make a lot of money in real estate or you should be able to just leave, you know, understand the world a little bit better. Uh, so, you know, I think the one thing that always surprises me, you know, particularly as a, let's say as a pilot, whenever there's a plane crash, uh, there is a, or an aviation incident, there's a huge amount of news guys, right? Uh, the, uh, of news noise around it, right? We've just had it now with the yeah. 737 yeah, Max, of right? With Boeing, uh, otherwise a fantastic company that's having some, having yeah. some issues right now with this product. Uh, anytime there is an aviation incident, it blows my mind how many people on TV speaking to millions of people at a time have no idea what they're talking about. Got it. Right. And any pilot can watch it and say, yeah, they have no idea. They have absolutely no Got idea it. what they're talking it's about. It's that obvious. It's that obvious because that's actually something where you know something about. So any area where you're going to put, where you're going to risk anything, just kind of get the facts straight. Yeah. But it's hard. And, you know, Nate Silver, one of my uh, kind of favorite pop culture, uh, you know, statistician, uh, thinking logic guys, uh, you guys, 538, I'm sure you're familiar with him and read us, maybe Not read his really, sports stuff, but well, he's, he's pretty fun. Uh, no, I know. He wrote not. a book called The Signal and the Noise yeah, uh, yeah, or yeah. The Signal versus the Noise. I forget the exact title, but effectively got to this kind of same issue, right? How do you figure out what's what's worth paying attention to, what's what not. may be baloney and what may be true? And, um, you know, there's a you can train it a little bit. You can train it. It'd be a good class to teach at uh, high schools and college. It probably is some, but that would be a good class. Maybe you should teach it. Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where are you flying lately? You, uh, you have a passion for aviation. Uh, have you taken any trips lately? Well, I'm thinking of taking the kids up to Big Bear uh, on Sunday for a quick run. Yeah. If I can get back in time for how the baseball far, game. What's the farthest you've gone? How, you know, how far? Oh, I, I don't, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I mean, the, the, the particular plane that I fly is a, it's a non-glamorous uh, four-seat, single-engine, piston, carbon fiber, monocoque airframe. And uh, you've been – And do, it goes uh, – uh, you know, it's you know, LA to Tucson is about as far Got as it. I'd want to go. And you've yeah. been flying like for how long? 
I've oh, been flying. I took my first flying lesson when I was 16. Oh, wow. So you've yeah. been passionate about this your whole life. Yeah, for sure. That's and, and as an investor, I spent a lot of time thinking about aerospace and defense as well. Uh, right. Anytime you can take, right. Anytime you, you, you can invest in something that you're willing to stay up and, and stay engaged right, until two in the morning, and you don't want to go to bed. You don't want to yeah. turn out the light. You're under the cover with the flashlight. So you that's don't, how you become an expert. <laughs> that's it. That's Dive your thing. Deep. That's your thing. That's fantastic. Well, how are you feeling about the Dodgers this year? Any chance? three years in a row going to the World Series? Are we going to be the Buffalo Bills of baseball? What's going on with our I don't Dodgers? Know. It's pretty hard for me to believe we're not going to make the playoffs or at least be in the wild card. What do you think? I think we're definitely getting the playoffs. I don't know if we're winning at all. Uh, we'd need some more pieces, I yeah. think, especially yeah. pitching. <laughs> I think, though, it's a pretty stacked lineup, and it, I'd be shocked if we stay healthy that we don't get into the postseason. Whether we go all the way, it's really, uh, that's just we need some more pieces and some luck like always. It's, right. You know, so on this epistemology point, yeah. the one thing I know I don't know anything about is how to predict baseball. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm going to enjoy the games. I'm going to root for the Dodgers like every uh, like every guy in L.A. whose kids love the Dodgers. Yeah. Uh, in terms of actually being able to predict, I have no advantage. You're staying there. away from I that. I have no advantage there uh, other than to try right. to compete. So I could just blow smoke up your ass and talk to you about the Dodgers and you'll be like, yeah, okay. That you might like be able to do logic. with the Dodgers. Well, yeah, because I can convert dollars, salary <laughs> dollars into – I can take salary dollars and draw some reasonable relationship between salary dollars and uh, and victories, right? Uh, so I might believe it a little bit if you blew smoke up my you-know-what. Uh, I probably <laughs> wouldn't be believe it the other out. way, but, you know, don't know it. Well, Josh, it was awesome having you. Thanks, Thanks for hanging out. I know we could go on for hours and hours, and hopefully we'll have a dinner soon, and we'll get more into other things. But thanks for coming. Thanks for tuning in to The Deal with Danny Brown, Josh LaBelle. You rock. Always, always good to see you, and looking forward to seeing you soon. You're the best, Danny. Thanks, man. Hey, want to thank Josh LaBelle again for coming by. Man, he was dropping knowledge on us. I know a lot of that stuff is uh, complex business talk, but, you know, he tried to break it down the best he can for us dummies out there. But thanks again for tuning into the deal with Danny Brown. You can find me at Danny Brown LA on Instagram. Uh, Josh doesn't do social media so much, so, you know, can't give you any info there. But I appreciate him coming out. Hope to see you guys soon. Thanks a lot. Bye.